theyeshiva.net. Today's class is dedicated to a very, very special woman who was taken from us recently. <clears throat> and a personal friend and relative to many of you who are joining us here today, Darina Kalati, Esther Bas Eliyahu, who was 43 years old, and uh, after a 20-month battle with lung cancer, has returned her soul to its maker just a few weeks ago on Shabbos, November 7th, 2020, the 20th day of Cheshvan, Shabbos Parshas Vayer, the 20th day of Cheshvan, 5781. So this week is the Shloishim, the 30-day period since her tragic passing at the age of 43. Esther Darina was one of the great lights of the Jewish world and particularly of the special community of Great Neck. Any of you who are from Great Neck or familiar with Great Neck know she was one of the most beloved and cherished Torah teachers in the community, an exceptional life coach. She guided lovingly and mentored, helped, inspired, and kindled the flames and hopes, not only among family and friends, but people from close and far in every possible way. Her impact, her influence, the power of her faith, her wisdom, her empathy, and her caring were extraordinary. And indeed, the entire community mourns the passing of such a great spiritual person, such a beacon of light and hope and love at the age of 43. I want to express my deepest condolences to her husband, life's partner, Ariel, to her three beautiful young children, who adored their mother and who, who's, who, was, who, who were so loved and cherished by their mother, Ethan, Jonah, Leah. Of course, our deepest condolences to her mother, who's still with us, Diana, Dina, and to her brother, my dear friend, Daron, who's dedicating this class in honor of his sister, who he was so close to and they had such a special relationship. It's never ever easy to lose such a person, any person, especially such a person, especially at such an age, such a young age. It's excruciatingly painful, difficult to comprehend and wrap our brains around. One thing we know is that her light will never be obliterated. Her children will carry her soul, her love, her passion in the future of their lives, pass it on, God willing, to their children. And everyone she touched, the values she bequeathed to others, the faith that she helped others discover, the wisdom that she imparted to others, continue to live and inspire as her soul experiences its unique journey in the world of truth and in the bosom of God. So this class is dedicated in her loving memory, La'elu Nishmata, and as a tribute to her. She was born on Shabbos, she passed away on Shabbos, and her life was one of Shabbos. Serenity, peace, inner joy, 
inner connection with herself, with her loved ones, with her family, with her community, and with the creator of the world, may her soul be bound up in the eternal bond of life. And it's an honor for me to dedicate this shir, this class in her memory. I'll begin with a little anecdote, which I thought was cute. There was this Jew who made a Hanukkah party. And he invited all the guests to come, you know, relatives and family. It was a lavish Hanukkah party. He was somebody who loved Judaica and loved antiques. He would always go to auctions and purchase old items. And he had this, this library, a treasure chest of all these beautiful historic items from the days of yore. So at this Hanukkah party, he made sure to show off to the guests, you know, all the antiques he had. So as people were sitting at the table and enjoying the latkes and the donuts and the other good Hanukkah delicious food that was being served, the man pointed to the menorah and he says, you see this menorah? This menorah is 450 years old. It was created by so-and-so in this in this country. You see this dreidel? This dreidel come from Poland before the war. You see this oil? This oil was used during the Second World War. He goes through everything. Candles, the wax that's still on the menorah. Somebody was sitting there and was eating the donuts. The man says, and how, how old are these donuts? So, the story of Hanukkah is a very old story. It's close to 2,200 years old. That's a long time. America celebrated Thanksgiving recently, so that's a story that's also old, but it's a few hundred years old. The 1620s, which is 400 years old. Nice amount of time. But you can't compare it with the Hanukkah story that is more than 2,000 years old. And yet, there's an aspect of it, all aspects of it, that are really extremely, that is extremely fresh and vibrant and relevant and extremely uh, contemporary to our times today. And it's one aspect of the story that I want to share, that I feel is very relevant to many of our lives. Let's first remember the facts of the story even though they're known, but it's always good to remind ourselves the facts. The story takes us back to the year 164 before the Common Era, 164 BCE. This is around 150 years before the birth of Christianity. It's two centuries before the destruction of the Second Temple by the Romans. Israel, Judea, Eretz Israel, the Holy Land, was under the rule of the Empire of Alexander the Great who of course came from Macedonia, he's known as Alexander Mogdon, in Greece. A Syrian ruler, known as Antiochus V, ascended the throne and was determined to impose his values on the Jewish people. He set up a statue of Zeus in the Beit HaMikdash, in the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. He systematically desecrated Jerusalem's holy sites. He imposed horrific restrictions on the practices of Judaism at the pain of death. Many a Jew were barbarically tortured, mutilated, executed, 
when they were found practicing Judaism, the flame of Yiddishkeit came very close to being extinguished. Jews were forced to offer sacrifices, pagan sacrifices, to uh, to pagan gods, including to a swine, to a, offering a swine, a pig, sacrificing a pig in the base of Mikdash. The high priests that he appointed were completely, completely surrendered and subservient to the new Hellenist ideal. And in fact, many Jews supported this. It just felt right for them. Why fight City Hall? In fact, many aspects of Greek culture were very enthralling and enticing for the Jews, even though it came with such a heavy price of human torture and blood and cruelty. A small group of Jews, led by the elderly priest Matisyahu and his sons, rose in revolt. They fought a brilliant campaign, and within three years, they recaptured Jerusalem, they removed all of the horrible objects from the temple, they restored Jewish autonomy. It was, as we say in the Hanukkah prayers, a victory of the weak against the many, a weak, the weak against the strong, the few against the many. Religious liberty was established, and the Beis HaMikdash was rededicated. That's why it's called Hanukkah, which means rededication. But, let's go one step further. What was at the core of the conflict? So in the al prayers, the prayers of Hanukkah, we describe the core of the conflict. And we say, and I'll quote, this is from the prayers of all the services of Hanukkah and the grace after meals. Meaning, we say, it was in the days of Matis Yahu, the son of Yochanan, the high priest, the Hashmanoi and his sons, when the wicked Hellenistic regime, the Syrian Greeks, rose up against your people Israel to make them forget your Torah and violate the decrees of your will. I want you to reflect on these words. They wanted to make the Jews forget your Torah, we're talking to God, and to violate the decrees of your will. Now, every word in prayer is precise. Why does it not say when the wicked Hellenistic regime rose up against your people Israel to make them forget the Torah and violate the mitzvahs? Why the emphasis on your Torah and the decrees of your will. Well, you'll say, what's the difference, this expression, that expression? Every word is precise. It should have said, this evil regime stood up, they wanted Jews to forget Torah, and they wanted they should all violate the mitzvahs. But you see, the prayer is much more specific. They wanted the Jews to forget your Torah, they wanted the Jews to violate the decrees of your will. This is not just a small change. It's not only poetic. They wanted me to forget your Torah. It actually goes to the heart of the conflict. Because this was not just a conflict about religious freedom. It ran much deeper. And in that sense, it persists till today. Not only outside of us, but also inside of us. If I ask you a question, how much of your life is guided by rational decisions? And how much of your life is guided by decisions that are not necessarily rational? So most people would like to say that we're guided by rational decisions. We're all rational people, and hopefully we try to be rational people and think things through. That's true. But what is more powerful in the person? Our inner wills and desires that transcend rationality or our rationality? 
So for thousands of years, philosophers believe that rationality is the most powerful tool in a person's life. And if you convince somebody rationally for something, you'll solve the problem. In Kabbalah, that was never understood, it was never understood that way. In Kabbalah, Keser is above Chachma. The first faculty of wisdom is called Chachma, and above that is Keser, which is the crown, which means Ratzin, the will. In other words, will transcends logic. Because the truth is that there is something much deeper than rationality in the human soul and the human brain. Yes, we're rational, we like to be rational people and we want to understand things, and if you can explain to me certain things, I may change my mind. But the deepest convictions and the deepest values that you have are not based on rationality. Today, in psychology, this is a well-accepted truth over the last century, but for thousands of years, everyone thought the philosopher, that's the pinnacle of the human being. That's ultimately, that's how you get the people through their mind, through their logic. But sit down with anybody who's struggling with something, with disappointment, with pain, with a feeling of incompetence, with wounds, with scars, with anxiety, with stress, with disappointment, with depression, with other toxic ideas, feelings, senses, thoughts, emotions, with trauma. And explain to them rationally that logically doesn't make sense. How, how much is it going to help? You're dealing with processes in a person that are much deeper than his rational or her rational mind. And you have to address those processes. From a Jewish perspective, especially the Kabbalistic tradition, Ratzon is much deeper than Chachma. Chachma is very powerful, but Ratzon, desire, your inner values are much deeper than that. I said yesterday in my class, I was once talking to a top therapist, and I asked him, I said to him, I want to ask you a question. How do you know that you hit the spot? When you're sitting with a patient, how do you know that you really got it? You, t- you touched the spot. And he said something very profound. He said, as long as they are explaining their positions, as long as they are rationally justifying what they believe in, and there's a logic to it, I know that I did not get them to spill the beans. I did not let them become connected with their inner core. I said, so when do you know you got them connected to an inner truth? He said, when all the explanations go out the window, there's no more rational justifications, there's no more structuring things in boxes and making sense out of them. Rather, I'll see tears flowing down their cheeks and they'll look at me and they'll say, this is who I am. These are my dreams. These are my needs. These are my deepest desires. These are my aspirations. It's just who I am. But why? It's irrelevant. The why is not touching that spot. Why is a later addition? Our brain dresses up our inner desires with logical explanations. So it's packaged nicely. And it's presentable to the public, including presentable to us. But if you want to get deeper into your neshama, deeper into your brain, much deeper than rationality and logic, our inner deep aspirations and yearnings that are not about logic. You see, logic structures everything. It gives it a certain definition and structure and reason. You know, you could seal the box, tape it up, put a label on it, okay, reason number one, reason number two, reason number three. That itself means it's not coming from the innermost place of the soul. The innermost place of the soul is not a logical entity. So what is it made up of? Its energy is rooted in a place of infinity. It's aligned with the Ein Soif. It's aligned with the source of existence. God is not logic. God created logic. So if God is not, if God created logic, he or she is completely not defined by it. 
Yes, God created logic and we cherish logic and we use it, but it's not the beginning and the end of everything. It has its contribution that it plays in history and in life. And it must be utilized to its fullest, if we even can utilize it to its fullest, because it's an exceptional tool. But it's not the core of life. It's not the core of psychology. It's not the core of self-awareness. It's not the core of growth. On the contrary, if I am operating on a level of logic, I am operating on an external level. Everything fits, it's perfect, but I'm not really operating from my deepest place. Because if I'll be operating from my deepest place, over there, things are far deeper than any logical structure or explanation or justification. In fact, many people become so logical because they're afraid to unleash the inner energy. They're afraid to unleash their deepest emotions. They don't want to turn on that faucet. They don't want to turn that valve. They don't want that flow to happen. So the brain protects them, and everything becomes logical. But it's cold, it's a little detached, it's cerebral. It's not living life. We need our mind to guide us. We need our mind to help us harness emotions. We need our mind to tell us and distinguish between threats, real threats and fake threats, between delusions and truth between completely misguided misguided uh, ideas versus things that have validity. So logic is very, very valuable, but it's valuable as a stepping stone. It's valuable as a tool to remove the debris, falsehoods, superficiality, to get rid of ridiculous ideas and so forth, to be able to serve as a parameter if I'm just barking up the wrong tree. But real, the real truth of me of relationships, we is on a is in a place that's much deeper than any logic. Let me give an example from marital therapy. So a husband and a wife are sitting in the therapist's office. It can work both ways. I can give an example both ways. Since it's a woman's class, I'm going to give it one way, but it can also be the other way. So any man who's listening to me, please don't think that I'm discriminating against men. I have nothing against men. In fact, I myself happen to be a man, if you noticed. So I have absolutely nothing against men. I'm just talking to women. So I'm giving an example from this side. We can give the exact same example from the other perspective. Now you can ask me which one happens more often. I don't know. You'll speak to your therapist and you'll find out which one happens more often. So there's a woman sitting there and she's crying. She's discussing her needs, her dreams, her desires, her disappointments, how difficult it is with the relationship and the communication and what's going on with the kids and what's going on with the house and what's going on with work and what's going on at night and what's going on in the bedroom and what's going on in the kitchen and what's going on in their conversations and what's not going on. And the therapist turns to the husband and says, what do you say? (laughs) So here's a classic, right? He starts logically explaining why his wife is wrong. This she doesn't need, it doesn't make this doesn't make sense, this doesn't make sense, this doesn't make sense. And since he learned Gemara for so many years, and he honed his intellectual skills, so he becomes an expert on this. And it's like an encyclopedia. And he explains everything. And it's a he gives a beautiful sheet, a beautiful class. And what does his wife do? She picks up both of her hands, like in despair yet once again. What is this guy missing? What's this guy missing? He may be right in the world of cerebral logic. He may be right. But people are not computers. She's having deeper experiences, deeper emotions. You'll say, well, she does. She shouldn't. Let's every, let everything be intellectual and logical. The problem is that's not true. It's not a human being. 
You can make somebody be like that only if you kill their soul. If you repress their emotions, their sensations, their inner experiences, their inner world. If you want me to be a computer, fine. I can be a lifeless computer. So the therapist explains this to the man. He says, when your wife says, I want something, I need something, I value something, don't start proving her wrong. You have to create space for that. This is her reality. This is her truth. So the husband matures and grows up and says, okay. Turns to his wife and says, if this is what you want, this is what I'm going to do. Even though it does not make sense to me and it's not logical, this is what I'm going to do. When she leaves the office, he turns to the therapist and he says, but now you have to explain to me why. You have to explain to me the logic behind of what she wants. I'll do it. But I want to understand the logic. I get, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'm a good man. I'm not selfish. I want a good marriage. I'll do it. But now explain to me why. Or he'll go back to his wife and say, listen, I'll do what you want. But I need to understand why. <laughs> I'm not going to argue. I'm not going to convince you otherwise. I'll, I'll, I'll do what you want. But explain it to me. Again. He missed the boat. Why did he miss the boat? He missed the boat because he is believing that life's decisions, that life's values, that life's deepest yearnings are based on logic. They're not. They're not. Now, this is a shock for a lot of people, I have to tell you, because when you grow up among Jews, logic is considered tremendous and all learning, much of learning, you have to use your brain, your analytical brains to understand. And they're always questioning and refuting. But we have to understand that if we get stuck there, we can actually be learning like the Greeks. There is the Greek inside of me who is not ready to really embrace that the core of life is not seichel. The core of life is infinity. The core of life is divinity. The core of life is elikus. The core of life is ein seif. The core of life is that your soul is a chelik eloikam imal mamish, your soul is a fragment of God, and God is not an intellectual entity. God created intellect, created logic. Logic is, is, is beautiful. We're not enemies of logic at all. We're not enemies of rationality. We love it, we cherish it, we embrace it, we use it. But it's not the essence of life. So, but tell me why. There's no why. If there's a why, it's not me. It's a garment. If there is a why, you did not touch the core. You only got to the corridor. You got to the foyer. You got to the rooms, to the hallway. You didn't get into the intimate chamber of my soul. As long as you're asking me why, or I'm asking myself why, I am not touching the deeper parts of my truth. The deeper parts of my truth, there's no why. It comes from a place that is deeper than why. So you say, why? Because this is who I am. But why are you this way? Because this is who I am. These are my deepest ritzainas. These are my deepest yearnings and aspirations. Can you make space for that in your wife? Can you make space for that in your husband? If you can, this can single-handedly change the relationship. If you can really, really make space for it in yourself and then in somebody else. You can't make space for this in somebody else if you can't make space for this in yourself. It's not the only thing you need to have a good marriage, but it's an important piece. 
So you see the two steps that I that I developed here? Step number one is the person says, I can't do it if I don't understand. Step number two is, I'll do it. But I still need to know that there's a reason. And both are misguided. And these are the two steps that exist in our marriage with Hashem too. There is a Judaism that is not based. There is a Judaism, let's call it the... the if I could be, it's called the Greek version of Judaism. I'll learn Torah. I believe in it. It's an intellectual, it's intellectually brilliant. It's dazzling. It's amazing. It's so good for the brain. But you know what? You're missing the point. You're an intellectual. It's satisfying for the brain. And it's, it's, it's good. You're doing an amazing thing. But you're missing the core. You're missing the elokus in Torah. You're missing the edelkeit in Torah. Edelkeit means refinement. I want to teach great neck this word, edelkeit, refinement. Edel is one of the Yiddish Ashkenazic words. You're missing the godliness in Torah. The pnimius, the essence of Torah. When I'm learning Torah, of course there's a lot of intellect. I told you, Torah is the source of intellect. Judaism is the source of rationality. And it's important Never to dismiss rationality, I'll tell you why. Because it's our only defense to distinguish between cults and non-cults. The moment you dismiss rationality and you say, oh, it's just about amun and faith, you allow a person to sometimes live in delusions and create philosophies or ideas in life that are corrupt or ridiculous or absurd. So we need to use our critical mind, and that's why the critical mind is so valuable in Judaism, to be able to distinguish truth from falsehood. And it's also true in our emotional life. You say, everything is emotion, emotion, yeah. But if you're feeling right now that a lion is coming through the window of your room and coming into the house, right, then everything has to stop. I should stop giving a class and I should run away. So we have to use our critical mind to be able to objectify things and be able to distinguish between objective objective facts, subjective feelings, and to be able to navigate it. So it's so important. What is more, somebody who was growing up with the notion that Judaism is completely non-intelligent. It's based on myths, religious myths. There's no logic to it. There's no rationality to it. Everything that we accept is based on blind faith, which means we close our eyes and we refuse to look. The only way I can begin to address such an argument is through some type of rational conversation showing that there is a huge amount of rationality in Judaism. In fact, some of the greatest principles of Judaism can be explained and proven rationally. So it's very, very important. And when you're deciding what to do for a Hanukkah family trip, right? You I feel, I feel that this is what I want. You have to look at the facts and what's available and what's not available during Corona. This is where rationality is so valuable and important as a function of life but not as the tool to allow you to experience the essence of life and the essence of relationships. The essence of relationships transcends rational logic. It touches the place of, of the deepest infinity of the human soul, which transcends logic, because logic is not the beginning of existence. Logic is an aspect of existence. It's not the genesis and core of existence. Logic is not infinite. Logic is finite. Like the Maral of Prague writes, we don't call Hashem Haseichel Baruch God is the blessed mind. God has a God is the creator of the mind. Right? We say in in in, in Tehillim, the beautiful expression in Tehillim in the in the melody in the song of Wednesday. 
If God creates an ear, he could certainly hear. If he forms an eye, he could certainly see. But you can't define him as an eye or an ear. He can see and he can hear, and he can think and he can understand. You're, you're wise, but not with the knowing Chachma. You're the source of Chachma. So the Maral says, that's why we call him HaKadosh, HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Kaddish is aloof, infinite, sublime, even beyond intellect. He argues with Maimonides, because the Rambam defines Hashem in three places, in Hilchus Yisaydi Atari, in Hilchus Tshuva, and in Meri Nebuchim, as Hu Amadu, Hu Ayadeyev, Hu Ayadua. The Rambam says, He is the knower, He is the known, and He's the instrument of knowledge. So the Maral says that they should have called Him the intellect, blessed be He. They say the Holy One, blessed be He, because He transcends logic. The Tanya says that there, there's no ultimate contradiction. Because the Maral is speaking pre-Tzimtzum and the Rambam is speaking post-Tzimtzum. It's beyond the realm of this class. But in, in one sentence, the Rambam is addressing divine infinity post the restrictiveness in which infinity is compressed into finite structures, beginning with Chachma. And the Maral is addressing divine infinity in its pure unmitigated form, so to speak, where there's no form and therefore no structure, because logic is always about structure. They say there were two students who uh, <laughs> who took a philosophy class in a great university. I said two. Many, there were many students who were studying philosophy at the feet of a great professor. And after years and years of study, they're finally going to take their last exam, which will demonstrate if they failed or they passed. If they can get their degree or, or, or lose their degree, forfeit their degree. So they prepared for weeks and months for this exam, going through all the texts and all the books and all the dissertations and all the essays and all the materials the professors prepared for them over the years. They had to master everything. It was so difficult. It was excruciatingly painful and exhausting to go through all this material. But this was the only option if you wanted to pass. Finally, the day comes and the professor gives all the students an exam. They expected an exam with 300 questions. It's going to take them eight hours to answer, maybe a few days. Instead, the exam had one question. And the question consisted of one word. And the word was, why? Question mark. So the students see a question, why? Question mark. So they begin to answer. And they write pages and pages, dissertations, essays, to explain why, why. Everybody failed besides two students. One got an A and one got an A+. Who got an A? The student who wrote why, he wrote one word, because. The second student, he got an A+. Why? His answer was two words, why not? You see, you see the difference? Everybody failed. They were busy. Why? The second, the other student says, why? Because. But he didn't get it. He didn't get the best mark. The best mark was given to the student who wrote, why not? Because the one who wrote because, he's not giving any reason. He's just saying because. You say why, I say because. But he's still stuck in the world of logic. The other student, why not? In other words, since when is why? A justified question. It's a justified question in a world that is dictated by logic. But what about a world in reality that's not dictated by logic? It comes from a place beyond logic. So the question why doesn't begin. Not a question of <clears throat> why, and you'll tell me why. Because X, Y, and Z. Or because of a reason I don't understand. 
No, the question doesn't begin. Why, why not? So you'll say, but what do you mean? Our universe is based on logic. There's so much logic. The laws of nature. The laws of nature are rational. But to a certain degree. Ultimately, every why can be questioned. But why? But why? But why? And at some point, you're going to have to stop and say, because. Anything you discuss, science, physics, mathematics, chemistry, astronomy, cosmology, geology, philosophy, psychology, even the basic facts of life. I once saw a video somebody sent me of uh, one of the greatest physicists of the last generation was Richard Feynman. He was part of the Manhattan Project. He was considered one of the brilliant physicists of the last generation. So somebody asked him, why do uh, magnets, when you bring two magnets together, they repel each other? What, what is this energy that you're feeling? What is it? Why? So he turned to the person and said, explain to me what does why mean? What does why, why mean? So he said, your grandmother ended up in the hospital. I say, why, why is she in the hospital? So you'll tell me because she fell and broke her hip. So he said, okay, if you live in a culture where people know what hospitals are and how you go to hospitals, that's a wonderful answer. But if you live in a, from another, if you're in another continent or another age of history, you say, so why the hospital? So now you have to explain what a hospital is. But, one said, but how did she get to the hospital? So now you have to explain. Her husband took her. But why would her husband take her to the hospital? So now you have to explain the relationships. But one second, why did she slip on ice? Why did she slip? Why did she break her hip? Because she slipped. Why when you slip, do you fall? Ooh, now you have to get into the laws of gravity. Now why do the laws of gravity work the way they do? You see, it all makes sense. After I accept there's laws of gravity, when you slip, you fall. When you fall, you break your hip. Why does your hip get broken when you fall? Ah, because the body contacted the ice in that particular fashion, and now you have to discuss the makeup of the body. But why is the body made up that way? So you'll say, well, this is important to the organism and the structure of the body. And then there's a deeper layer, and yet a deeper layer, and at some point it's because... He said, and why do you slip on ice? Why do you slip on other things? And now you have to explain the difference between ice and water. If it expands, it restricts. If it expands or it shrinks, why does it work that way? So now you have to explain the physics of ice and the physics of water. And you'll go deeper and deeper. deeper. So most of us will drive us crazy. Why is she in the hospital? Because she slipped and broke her hip. Good. But you know how many other whys that's based on? And you think you can ever end? At some point... The laws of nature, even though they're unbelievably rational, and it's probably one of the greatest proofs that there is a creator, because how suddenly from chaos, randomness, and from random mutations that have absolutely no basis in an intelligent creator, did so many rational laws come to be. And they all, it's not one law that happens to be rational. There are scores, countless rational laws, and they synchronize with each other in order to create the conditions that support the existence of life on our planet, and that support generally the existence of a cosmos. And it's all based on laws. And all science is based on laws. There's no laws of nature, there's no science. So even the greatest atheist who's teaching or working in his lab or doing his experiments is expecting laws of nature and he's searching for them when he's unaware of them. He goes into his lab every morning claiming there's no God, but he's relying that there are predictable laws of nature that govern science yesterday, will govern it today, and will govern it tomorrow. And he's aware of them, and he relies on them, and he trusts them. And you know what he's doing? He's trying to figure out more laws that we're unaware of, and more patterns. And they all happen randomly by mistake. It's a little strange. It makes a little more sense in my mind, at least, 
to say that laws have a creator. Somebody created these systems. So the rationality of the laws of nature are an incredible testimony to the fact that this world is not a chaotic place. But ultimately, at some point, you're going to have to stop asking why. Why is this the law of nature? Well, it allows for this to happen this way. But why do we need it to happen that way? Well, if not, well, so how is that a justification? You'll get to why and why and why. And ultimately, you're going to have to say, because. (laughs) Because what? It's just the way it is. We don't understand. But then you'll have to go deeper and say, because it's not rooted in a place of logic. You don't understand. God is not logic. God created logic. And therefore, how do I touch God? I have to touch myself. Can't do it with logic. And this is where the Greeks missed the point. And here is where Hanukkah becomes a very personal experience. I have the Greek inside of me. I could learn Torah. I can observe mitzvahs. I can teach Torah. But I'm not ready to touch the primius of Torah. The alakus of Torah. The godliness of Torah. The infinity of Torah. Torah for me is information that fills my brain, it challenges me, I get analytical, I make a pilpul, I dissect, I go deeper, another explanation, another explanation, and I create a puzzle. And it's amazing, and it's true, it may be true, it may not be true, but it may be true. But I didn't touch the Torah. Just like in a relationship that you have with somebody, I'm explaining myself, and you're explaining yourself, but we never looked each other into, the, into our eyes, and allowed our tears to merge with each other, in the simple recognition that this is who I am, this is who you are, and our trust and connection with each other matters above all else. And then logic helps us facilitate, cement, ferment, develop, and structure the aspects of our life that can be structured. And one of the greatest mistakes that we can make is when we try to wrap our brains around reality. This is an invitation for emotional (laughs) disaster. Don't try to understand everything with the idea that you have to understand. So much of reality is not based on our logical structures. Not only not based on our logical structures, not even based on a logical structure. I don't have to wrap my brains around everything. I want to be able to open myself up to the infinity of reality at every moment. And then my mind and my rationality should be able to be used for what it's supposed to be used. Those aspects of life that need the structures of logic in order to facilitate them in the best way, that's where logic should be used. But not as a replacement for life itself. So what's the value of a mitzvah? The value of a mitzvah is, is does a mitzvah make sense? A lot of mitzvahs make a lot, a lot of sense. <laughs> Shabbos makes sense, and mikvah makes sense, and tefillin makes sense, and davening makes sense, and blessings make sense, and grace after meals makes sense, and Pesach makes sense, and Hanukkah makes wonderful sense. Plenty of mitzvahs make sense. I would say 90% of Judaism has amazing explanations to it. Rational, moving, transformational in terms of serenity, psychology, philosophy, family unity, peace in life, uh, a healthy lifestyle, a productive lifestyle. When I say 100% of it, some things are mysteries. But when you see 95% of it makes so much sense, it works. But that's not the core, that's not the essence. The essence of a mitzvah is the relationship with infinity, the relationship with Hashem's inner self. The essence of Torah is not the intellect of it. The essence of Torah is not the pilpul, it's not the chakira, it's not the analytics, 
It's not the intellectual compositions. It's not the genius that I'm displaying. Those are all garments, even though they're wonderful, stupendous, enjoy them. And it's God's Torah. And the logic of it is also God's Torah. But the essence of it is infinity. It transcends logic. You're touching Hashem Himself, Hashem's essence. This was very, very hard for them to accept. Because for them, the structure of logic was above all. And therefore, ultimately, they don't last because they're not touching the essence of life. The essence of life is infinity and I have to be able to open myself up. I have to be able to open myself up to that. In every person's life, especially today, we go through different challenges, different curveballs, different things that we don't expect. You had your plans of what your marriage is going to look like, what your life is going to look like, what your dreams are going, how your dreams are going to materialize, how your children are going to grow up, what type of career you'll develop, how you're going to live into law, how you're going to enjoy the future of your life. We all create plans and they're beautiful and, and may all of your plans and dreams be fulfilled. But we all know that very often things don't happen according to that trajectory. And very often when we operate on a level of logic, we just go straight into the wall. You know, I'm on a highway and I say, listen, I go straight. I don't go crooked. I'm logical. I like to think straight. And you go straight. The problem is the road is turning. So I go straight into the Hudson River, God forbid, or straight into a wall. You have to realize now the road is turning. But it's not supposed to turn. Logically, it doesn't make sense. Okay, you may understand it. You may not understand it. But there comes a moment in life where if you're trying to figure everything out with your brain, you're really depriving yourself from two things. You're depriving yourself from a real relationship with yourself and you're depriving yourself from the opportunity to be able to tune into this experience and grow from it. Two things happen. First of all, I shoot myself in the back because I am not connecting to my real pain. I'm not connecting to my real feelings. I am suppressing them through fake numbers, which I'm calling logic. The second thing is I'm not allowing myself to grow from this experience. This experience is not about logic. When we confront pain, we try to create structures of logic around the pain. Either we deny part of it, we bargain with it, we make sense out of it. You know what I'm talking about? I want it to work. It should sit comfortable within me. And there's a reason for that. We want to own our lives. We want to feel that curveballs cannot surprise us. Even those of us who like to be spontaneous, but I want to be in control. And I want to tell you something, that this is one of the great traps in people's internal lives. When we are compelled to make sense out of pain and to make sure that everything has a place in my brain, in my soul, it's a form of control. I want to control God. I want to control the world. I want to control my family. I want to control myself. I want to control reality. There are two things that happen in that approach. Number one, very often a part of me dies, God forbid, because my inner core, the inner pain, has not been embraced. It has not been dealt with. I covered it up through logical structures, but my inner vulnerability I never really embraced. That's number one. Number two, what happens is I can't really maximize the opportunity in this moment because I'm running away from the moment. I'm turning the moment into some type of statue, into some type of fake structure. 
But God is mystery. God is infinity. There are aspects of Hashem that we can fathom. There's aspects of life that we love and appreciate and cherish and we want to run with it. But very often our experiences in life do not try to make sense out of them. You are facing the infinite mystery of reality, the infinite mystery of God. Don't reduce the experience. Don't limit it. Don't try to have your limited brain control it and wrap itself around it and sculpture it. It, Allow yourself to look at the mystery, shrug your shoulders, shed a tear, or start laughing. And embrace the truth of the moment. Embrace the truth of the experience with vulnerability. I want to strip myself from all the layers and all the cover-ups that I need in order to make sense out of this. Can I just sit with the true reality of the moment, with the true reality of what I'm feeling, with the true reality of the experience, if you can, you are now going to touch God, and therefore you'll touch yourself. When I don't do this, when I try to grasp everything with my limited mind and reduce the reality to my mind, first of all, I'm not dealing with what's happening inside of me. I am making believe that I'm a robot, I'm a computer, and it may come back to bite me. I may have to amputate my inner soul in order to continue to function because it's too painful. You don't have to do that. Allow yourself to go into the place inside of you that does not need to operate on cold logic. It's a chelik elika. Don't be afraid of it. It's rooted in infinity that's beyond logic. It's fine. You don't have to understand it. And it can be very painful and it can shock me and it can really play with what I thought things have to look like and things are going to look like. And it's easier said than done. I'm talking about a very, very deep emotional experience. And number two, again, it does not allow me to touch the reality and really grow from it and really do what I'm supposed to do at this moment because I, I create like this fake, beautiful reality that doesn't really exist. So I can be a fine person, a good Jew, learning Torah, celebrating mitzvahs. But the Greek inside of me is the one calling the shots. When I do a mitzvah, what's the greatest power of the mitzvah? Does the mitzvah make sense? 95% of mitzvahs make sense. I don't know if you heard that piece when I went through the mitzvahs. But what's the power of it? And enjoy it and celebrate. What's the power of it is? The relationship itself. That's the deepest component. Can you understand your spouse? Yeah. Are there things in your spouse you won't understand? Of course. Are there a lot of things about your spouse that you understand? Yeah, but what's the deepest part of the relationship? Not that I understand you. I could make sense out of you. I can write an essay about my husband or about my wife that makes sense. Yes, that's part of it. It's interesting. It, it plays a role. What's the deepest part of the relationship? The relationship itself. Essence to essence. V'nafshayk shura benafshayk. Soul to soul. What's the power of Torah? Does it make sense? Yeah. Is it rational? Yes. Is it brilliant? Yes. Can you sit for years and decades and centuries and millennia and analyze every word with your brain and go deeper and deeper into the intellectual infinite brilliance? Absolutely. But ultimately that is all a garment. That is all an accessory of Torah. That is all a facade for Torah. What is the essence of Torah? The essence of Torah is divine infinity coming through all of these ideas. Behind every idea, behind everything is divine wisdom. And divine wisdom is beyond logical structure. Even though it's manifested through logical structures, and a lot of it I can understand and appreciate intellectually. Today we don't have the Hellenist Greeks threatening us. Not in Greece, and not on Tiochus. But what we do have is 
the Yavani inside of me, the Greek inside of me, who wants to make sure that my relationships are contaminated. They're very limited. They are infected and infected by toxicity, by not allowing the full grandeur and the full glory of the connections of life to emerge. And the victory of Hanukkah is that the Lashkicham Teresecho was ineffective, but rather the flame of this relationship, the relationship between you and yourself, the relationship between you and your spouse, you and your children, you and your loved ones, the relationship between all of us with each other, the Jewish people and the world, and your relationship with Hashem is one that is infinite, that is pure, that is non-negotiable, it's unconditional, it's absolute. It transcends all logic, even while it informs it, and it inspires it. Thank you very much, and I wish everybody a beautiful and happy and a bright Hanukkah. Next Tuesday morning, there will not be a class. There will not be a class next Tuesday morning. We will resume the week afterwards. Um, There will be a class tomorrow morning at 7.30. There will be a class Thursday morning at 7.30. We will continue the mimer that we began Monday on Hanukkah. We will be producing this year as well our eight Hanukkah videos that will be available every day of Hanukkah. You can come to theyeshiva.net to watch them, or if you go there and you sign up to our clips on WhatsApp or Facebook or email or whatever it is, you'll be able to get them on your phone or in your inbox. So we will be having every night of Hanukkah a little short video and a lot of other Hanukkah material on the website, theyeshiva.net. I'm going to go to questions. This class is brought to you by theyeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.